Critically Linked, how books of the past shape our future. A Discourse Net podcast with Dana Triff and Jaspal Singh. My name is Dana Cliff, and together with Jasper Singh, we are the hosts of Critically Linked, How Past Books Shape Our Futures. Welcome to the second episode of the series. Critically Linked wants to bring back to the table old and new philosophers, while asking at the same time just how relevant their ideas still are when discussing contemporary challenges. And those are many these days, and in many, women are the most conspicuous participants. From the five to six million Ukrainian refugees in Europe, most of whom are women and children, women marching at the forefront of protests in the most recent wave of protests in Iran, women demanding their right to education in Afghanistan, women protesting against the striking down of Roe and the constitutional right to abortion in the US. So the second decade of the 21st century is getting defined by women. My question to our guests for today is, are we witnessing a resurgence of the woman, as in women's emancipation question, or is this an issue that was always there? Together with us are today Marco Favey. Hello, Marco. Hi. Professor of Political Science at Jacobs University Bremen, teaching courses in political science in international relations with research interests in global governance, cultural theory, and social neuroscience. And Kaushalia Pereira, Senior Lecturer at the Department of English, University of Colombo, Sri Lanka, where she teaches linguistics courses. Kaushalia's research interests fall in the areas of discourse studies, language and education policies, and Sinhala pragmatics. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Dana and Jasper. Great. Thank you very much, Dana. So dipping right into our topic today. Um, the author we are discussing is uh, John Stuart Mill, who lived between 1806 and 1873, and who was, by the standards of his era at least, and by all standards really, perhaps, a polymath genius. He's known as a philosopher, naturalist, utilitarian, a liberal, and empiricist in his approach to knowledge. As the son of the famous or infamous James Mill, one of the founders of the classical school of political economy, John Stewart received a different type of education. He studied Greek from the age of three and Latin from the age of eight. And by the time he was 15, John Stuart Mill was already working on his philosophical treatise. Yet among his most famous works are two political pamphlets, On Liberty, published 1859, and The Subjection of Women, published in 1869. We are interested today in the latter, but suffice to say, both concerned themselves with the question of freedom and how to remove the vestiges of slavery, subordination, and political discrimination from the 19th century public life. Now, I'm trying to set a bit the stage for our discussion. So linking a bit the background of Mill with the question for today, and coming back right to this broader topic of the episode, are we witnessing a resurgence of the woman question? I will begin with an excerpt from the subjection of women, meaning the opinion of John Stuart Mill, which he defends and argues for throughout the text and which reads, 
The object of this essay is to explain as clearly as I am able the grounds of an opinion which I have held from the very earliest period when I had formed any opinions at all on social or political matters and which, instead of being weakened or modified, has been constantly growing stronger by the progress of reflection and the experience of life. That the principle which regulates the existing social relations between the two sexes, the legal subordination of one sex to the other, is wrong in itself. And now, one of the chief hindrances to human improvement, and that it ought to be replaced by a principle of perfect equality, admitting no power or privilege on the, on the one side, no disability on the other. So would you agree or not with the statement that we live in a world where the principle of perfect equality Mill was speaking of has been achieved? Um, no, I, I, uh, I obviously think that uh, that is not uh, the case by far. And think, in fact, I think what we see around the world is a... Um, a backlash, I think, against uh, a lot of uh, previous victories of the gender equality movement um, and uh, backlash against the backlash. But if you look at viol violence against women, um, if you uh, still look also at legal obstacles around the world, if you look at the uh, recent decision about abortion by the US Supreme Court. Um, if you look all around the world, you see that I think women's rights, to the extent that they have been established, um, are in most places, not all places, but in most places are under threat. Um, and I also think that what we see around the world is this rise of this, this comeback of authoritarianism, um, which for me growing up in, in Western Europe, or still in the shadow of, of the Second World War, um, is, is astonishing, is absolutely mind-boggling to see that. And it seems to me that there is a kind of a global rise of resentment. And as part of that global rise of resentment, I think uh, women's rights um, in both negative and positive form negative and positive liberty are, uh, are very much under threat at the moment. So Kaushalya, you come from a different, uh, a different region. What is your perspective on this uh, debate? Is there regress, as, as Marco points out? I think there's, it's, for me, the issue is, as Marco says, there's a backlash, and I like Marco's term of backlash against the backlash also. Because in in situations like Sri Lanka or Iran, for example, there is an uprising for certain reform movements that is very, very um, inspiring in a sense and hopeful. But of course, going back to your question, initial question, Dana, in terms of like as as a female identifying person as somebody from the global south etc i would say or even just you know as a teacher anything that perfect equality hasn't been achieved but i also wonder is it even possible as as humans as social beings is that possible i think i keep wondering about that also great yeah i mean we already touched upon so some, some of the contemporary significance of mills 
uh, work. Um, he writes in a in a in a period where the so-called first wave of feminism was underway with the American and British suffragette movements, for example. But how contemporary really is John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women? Mill's understanding of subjection is perhaps quite modern. Would you would you agree with that statement? Um, yes, certainly. I think I was struck by some of how his arguments were so similar to discursive um, work or legitimization strategies that we use currently, for example, um, in my experience in the queer rights um, movement in Sri Lanka in the early 2000s, for example, we, it seemed like we were making the same rhetorical strategies to try to convince um, that, uh, you know, queer people can have the same rights that other people can have, um, or in just in terms of the, the sensitization work I see on disability rights in, in Sri Lanka going on right now. Um, I mean, in a sense, it's not surprising if we think of uh, the fact that colonial relations mean that we have vestiges of Victorian law in our legal frameworks also in the, in the post colonies, right? So in that sense, maybe it's not surprising that we have still needed to work with those same um, discursive frameworks, etc. Um, but for me, it also has to do with his way of articulation subjection via the issue of inequality between two groups of people. In, in this case, in this text, men and women, but like he says, also in terms of slavery, so in terms of governance also, um, so that it becomes relevant to other social or political groupings. It's certainly heteronormative, but I don't count this as a limitation of the text because it's a product of a particular time. Right, and you uh, you expect a certain pushing of conceptual boundaries, but if it stretched so far, it wouldn't be from that time or of that time. So, give with all those uh, parameters within that, I for me certainly it's still very relevant. I was um, as as I said before, I I was surprised by how much I found in it that I could use now. I but would agree. I think. Judging by by um, contemporary standards, I do think that he is surprisingly surprisingly relevant. I, I agree. When you're talking, of course, about somebody who was an MP uh, in in Parliament and introduced a bill for the, the women's uh, right to vote, um, and what you do see in former colonies of uh, of, of of the UK is that these laws are still on the books. It was only a few months ago, my, my wife's from Singapore, but a few months ago that uh, same-sex intercourse, same-sex sex, if you will, uh, using it in both senses of the term, uh, was uh, taken <coughs> off the list of uh, forbidden acts in Singapore, which was an old British law that was still uh, on there. And sometimes, not often, but uh, it was not entirely that. that, that. So, Actually, the relevance is there in a in a literal sense as well, because the the colonial he was a colonial administrator himself, of course, as well. Um, and these 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 are still in the law books of a lot of uh, of a lot of former colonies, which is bizarre. I think he's. I mean, I think what Mill, and it was also a little bit in the question with Mill, he often 
using that distinction between positive and negative liberty that Sarasaiba Lin introduced is often kind of grouped with first wave feminists fighting for rights and rights for divorce, rights for voting, rights for running the government, on and on and on. But I do think that when you're actually, and that's kind of the that kind of the take that people, you know, he's a, he was a liberal in the European sense, he fights for rights and that kind of thing. But when you read the book itself, um, then he does talk a lot, I think, about what we would now call social construction. Right? He does talk about, we have no idea <clears throat> um, what women could think, could feel, could be, and so on, because they've never been given the opportunity to, at least within, certainly within the UK and other uh, European he's very countries. he's very critical on that score also of of British society of the 19th century, right? Yeah, he is, and um, I mean, uh, um, I think it's also one of his, you know, the books when he was written when he was quite old, of course, grieving over his wife, and I think he was like, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go all out now. I don't care anymore. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, I mean, you do see some limitations, right? I mean. Um, I'm not a post-structuralist, post-essentialist, but you do see some essentialist elements in there that he says, well, you know, with a lot of caveats and disclaimers in, but he does say things like, oh, women are better at you know, recognizing facts that are in front of them, but not very good theoretically. And he makes, he makes statements that from today's perspectives are weird. I mean, I hesitate to, to speak because there are two... Uh, <coughs> literature and language specialist here, but um, he, he says that he says that uh, women have never come up with a new art form, even in fiction writing. And he was writing, of course, at a time when Jane Eyre um, had come out. <laughs> and um, and, and uh, that, that is now often kind of recognized as a, as a quite new way of uh, constructing uh, <laughs> narratives and, and and novels. So that was really, I was really, I looked into that a little bit. What you then also find is that the author, Charlotte Bronte, uh, was against giving women the right to vote. So that is how radical John Stuart Mill was at the time, um, that he was a lot more radical than the author of uh, Jane Eyre at the time, who, who came out against the right to vote at that time. I think he, he makes it, um, he makes it quite clear that there are uh, widespread or the majority of views in society are quite conservative, uh, and that um, he feels he feels he needs to bring uh, proofs in support of arguments. Uh, although uh, no arguments should be given when this is a question of right, and um, so I want to provoke you a little bit and play the devil's advocate here. Um, far right discourse always emphasizes somehow that there is a problem with the rights that women have acquired, that we have gone too far. And yes, we do have, I would say, overall the right to vote uh, that Mills, uh, like you, Marco, just mentioned, uh, advocated and, and also uh, practically helped with um, in, in the British Parliament. But um, do we really have too many rights or not? Yeah, I mean... Mills criticism of you know um, is are they still subordinate even though they have the right to vote? It's an interesting thing for me because in Sri Lanka women did not have to fight to get the right to vote uh, <laughs> because it was given to everyone. I mean 
also again part of being uh, a colony at the time, right? Um, but I also feel that one reason why we have, why I would say we still don't have rights, even though we have the right to vote, is because those rights are uneven, right? Across across regions, maybe or across um, communities, we don't have always the same rights, and we don't maybe have the same. The the law doesn't uphold itself for everyone in the same way. So in that way, we are also subordinate. If you take, for example, in Sri Lanka, the definition of rape does not extend to marital rape. Women who are married cannot. Um, speak about rape by husbands. Um, so, so in that sense, you know, there is a law for rape, there is a law about marriage, but it doesn't happen always in that same even-handed way, even within marriage itself. But it's also, I think, valid because of what Mill says at the very beginning about feelings that something is being defended against a mass of feelings and and any time that we have specific laws that, uh, let's say, undermine the, the masculine privilege within marriage, for example, this is the backlash we have uh, within parliaments. You know, uh, what will we do then if women do X, Y, and Z? Um, and, and so for me, it, it seems very, uh, very important to look at not just the letter of the law, but the context of the law. Um, so put, to put it very simply, women or female identifying people may not want to use the provisions even when they are there. And then in that sense, we are still subordinate and we need a lot more work, obviously. And it's still, I mean, uh, for political scientists, when we, when we look at parliaments and you see that the representation of um, males is so much higher. And then the, the question, in a sense, that males ask, how can one sex, to use his terminology, be expected to rightfully uh, legislate over the other or to legislate um, in, its, in the other's best interest? How can we really expect that? Um, and I think that question is quite, quite valid. Also, uh, Kaushalya, what you mentioned, the laws uh, being passed, um, even if you have the best intentions, um, if you are a male, um, are you really sure <laughs> that you know what you're legislating about? So, um, Marco, um, you, you are a male and uh, should you legislate, would you have the confidence um, to legislate uh, uh, in the other's interest? Well, first and foremost, I should never be allowed anywhere near power. Let's, <laughs> let's start with that. Um, I mean, there are people, and sometimes my students at Jacobs ask me, what about, the, and then there's this name of this Canadian guy, kind of misogynist who makes a lot of money online. I, re I honestly can't remember his name. Um, and the stuff about it has gone too far. And yeah, Mill talks a lot about uh, <clears throat> uh, burden of uh, proof. And I'm like, give me a concrete example of a law that unfairly benefits women. I really can't think. I mean, sometimes in academia, there are some positions at, say, the more technical universities here in the Netherlands where it's women only. But yeah, again, 
in the light of the fact that the overwhelming <coughs> um, uh, the overwhelming majority amongst faculty, especially at the full professor's level, is is male. I'm like, I just what which law exists that I do not? I mean, I have no idea that which law exists that unfairly <coughs> benefits women. I really don't. Concretely, I don't know of any single law that uh, that does that. Right. Now, reading Mill's book, but this is probably a bit too essentialist, um, I, I, I started to think maybe it would just be a good idea if we take away the voter right for men for uh, 400 years and, and the right to run for office and see what That's that... That's an interesting proposal. Very, very extreme. I'm sure the far right will have a field Because he said, you know, as you kept saying, we don't know... <laughs> Let's <laughs> this for a century. I, would, I really wouldn't mind. <laughs> Maybe that's too essentialist. And I know that the arguments about setting up um, <clears throat> that it's about eroding gender uh, dichotomies and gender inequalities and so on and so forth. But why don't we give it a try? Let's <laughs> see what happens. We can we can certainly reverse right the the positions and uh, see what one man. Yeah, we tried uh, the other system. We tried the other system for for, uh, for a few centuries. Let's. Uh, if not more, so let's try the opposite of it and see what, what comes out. Mill, Mill does say, and among the many interesting, some of them negative, like you, some of the essentialism about women that you, Marco, pointed out, I think is uh, incredibly sympathetic to the plight of women, uh, possibly also due to his own experience. He was in love, actually, with, uh, with a married woman um, who later on beca became his wife, and he to give him justice, credited many of his ideas to her, uh, which was not well received by his contemporaries, really. Uh, him being the polymath uh, genius uh, who was supposed to uh, create um, everything um, himself. Um, but um, nevertheless, um, he does speak, for example, of the negative effects that such power uh, has on the master um, compared to the slave, he, he really uses this term, right? And then the, the lesser offensive one of subordinate. Um, and so should we change position, of course, I think it would be um, a necessary experience maybe for, for men to understand uh, what such a system would do to them uh, were the positions of master, slave, slash subordinate be, be changed. Um, but I don't want to go too much into that because we, we are going to talk about it in a while. Uh, there is, though, one final, final thing I would like to um, ask you in this introduction. Um, we've talked a lot about the text so far. Um, when you reread it now for, for our discussion, what was the first thing that came to your mind? Well, I, I have a very short response. The first thing I thought is 150 years later and we still see things that are similar. I mean, a lot of change. A lot has changed, right? But so much has not changed. And I was, I kept thinking, it's 2021. That's, that's what I kept thinking. Yeah. Yeah, for me, what I was thinking is, he's such a humane person. It's such a, I mean, you always get in interviews with people in newspapers, you used to get this question a lot, sometimes you still do. Who would you like to invite for dinner? And I'm like, I, I mean, I, I have no idea, like my friends, I guess. But um, but yeah, I would like to, if he were alive, 
I would like to invite him because he's he's so brave in what he's saying. He's so humane. He's so honest, um, and, and and also quite human. You you see the the love for his wife and the respect for his wife and, and, and her daughter, of course, in in those books, and and also in in utilitarianism. The other one of his other books, of course, you, you you see him writing, and I'm like, you're trying to resolve your your daddy issues. You're really trying to. You know, you don't believe this. You really don't, <laughs> and and you just want to, you know, not. You want to defend your father from the criticisms that Macaulay, for instance, gave, and and so on. But um, and in this book, it's really it's so humane, it's so so drenched in 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 the love for his wife and the respect in which he held to that. That really, for somebody who was often seen as kind of just a, a brain on stilts. I thought that, that that emotion came through as well. well thank you, uh, Marco, for giving me the possibility to link this to, to our next topic. And that is, of course, Mill's critique of marriage, which takes a lot, um, the second chapter of his, of his book. And he paints a very stark image of the institution in Victorian times. He really talks about modern slavery uh, when it comes to women's legal subordination in the marriage. Um, so um, he was married because I mentioned her and she has a name. This is Harriet Taylor, later on Harriet Taylor Mill, also a, a fellow philosopher who upon the death of her first husband became his wife, but it was uh, quite scandalous at the time. And um, despite the fact that John Stuart Mill credited most of his ideas to her, um, she still had to live with the shadow of, of the scandal in Victorian society upon her. And I'm going to quote um, here from, uh, from Mill as an incentive uh, for our discussion. Marriage being the destination appointed by society for women, the prospect they are brought up to, and the object which is intended should be sought by all of them, except those who are too little attractive to be chosen by any man as his companion. One might have supposed that everything would have been done to make this condition as eligible to them as possible, that they might have no cause to regret being denied the option of any other. Society, however, both in this and at first in all other cases, has preferred to attain its object by foul rather than fair means. So women, for example, in the European society Mill talks about had no legal right uh, to decide whom to marry. And this right belonged uh, to their father or uh, in more enlightened cases to their parents. And so the next question I have for you, do you think that the institution of marriage has been sufficiently reformed to reflect what Mills called the principle of perfect equality? Uh I mean, definitely not if we consider the uneven sets of rights for marriage and divorce that we have around the world in different communities, I think. I mean, I think it's better, certainly, for women of my generation, if I consider what it was like for women of my grandmother's generation. Uh, perfect equality, as I said before, I don't know if it's ever possible. I think I am more Foucauldian in that sense. I, I feel like there are certain ways and certain spaces you can push. Um, I'm not really sure what perfect equality is or what it means. And maybe I'm just uh, a cynic. But 
I mean, that I mean, there's so much where I come from, right? In Sri Lanka, there's so much space. Um, we have a lot of rights, but we still have to work against social like norms and attitudes and feelings about it. Um, so maybe also it's my position which that informs it. Marco, you also mentioned uh, your wife, and perhaps we should write mention her as well. This is the novelist uh, uh, Li Jingjing from Singapore, um, who has, by the way, written a wonderful book on comfort women in Asia. So, Marco, you have the privilege of being married to a novelist wife. Um, what do you think? Is the principle of perfect equality achieved uh, in marriage? Um, I think it's incredibly different around the world. I think in, uh, I mean, first of all, the term institution, of course, goes beyond the legal, but even the legal situation is, is very different in, uh, say, in Saudi Arabia. Of course, always the classical example from, say, in the, in the Netherlands, um, uh, where I live. Um, I think it's um, there's if certain if you just look at the legal issues, then uh, I don't think that a lot of uh, equality has been reached in many parts of the world. If you look at the United States, if you look at uh, say Western Europe, look in Holland, I think legally, um, I think this is the case um, institutionally I think it's still not the case in, in, in many cases but um, I live in Amsterdam and yeah, a lot of people here don't feel the urge to get married at all um, and that's also legally possible um, as well but a lot of people just live together because they want to be together um, and and then things to do with inheritance and so on can be uh, legally arranged as well so I think in, in some countries, uh, <clears throat> perfect equality is, of course, uh, a very uh, charged word, maybe an impossible ideal. But in some countries, legally, there is a lot of uh, equality. Uh, and, and the funny thing is that the moment equality legally has been reached, you also see a lot of people don't want to get married anymore, which is which is an interesting uh, um, <laughs> interesting. Uh, development and if you ask people to say yeah we we love each other we want to be together and uh, yeah just what they in, in in holland they say this piece of paper doesn't really mean anything uh, for us that's perhaps a, a not very romantic view it's also kind of a public statement public declaration of your feelings for each other but um yeah but in in many many countries i think um it's uh, there's not there's not a lot of legal equality, never mind all the other institutions that come with it, who does who does the shopping, who does the cleaning, who, do, who does the cooking, uh, who takes care of the kids, um, and, and so on and, uh, and so forth. Um, it's, and it's interesting that Mill, of course, says, well, it's the natural task of the woman to take care of young kids. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's not a statement that... Uh, uh, he does. We, he does value though domestic work. I mean, he, he does. does he does. Yeah, he does. He's, job. Yeah, he's very uh, circumspect in that. But yeah, um, but yeah, I know a lot of couples in which all these tasks are shared. Yeah, this is if I if I can maybe also add like an anecdote that that I have experienced in terms of um, 
equality and marriage and so on. For some of my female friends from India, marriage to a man actually, at the beginning at least, uh, uh, signified a sense of liberation from their parents. Um, so, so moving away with someone away from the parents' house um, was only possible through the institution of marriage, um, or not only, but it was the, the most sort of the, the, the most entrenched, the easiest uh, path to take to sort of be free um, of your parents' um, domination in some ways, right? So, so as Marco said, I think we need to look at um, the institution of marriage in in all its complexities and in its all its sort of localized significance. Um, now, the next question has to do with what Koshali also mentioned briefly, um, these kind of entrenched opinions. Um, so we talked about the legal status and we can sort of relatively straightforwardly look at the legal status of you know, marriage in the Netherlands as opposed to Saudi Arabia or Sri Lanka or the US or whatever. Um, but then there are these ideologies, these kind of entrenched opinions as Mill calls them. And he said it is very difficult to fight uh, these entrenched opinions, although there is nothing quote unquote natural about the subordination of women um, which he uh, likens to the vestiges of slavery. And he says, quote, on page eight, in every aspect, the burden is hard on those who attack an almost universal opinion, unquote. Um, or he says on page nine, quote, in practical matters, the burden of proof is supposed to be with those who are against liberty, who counted Oh, sorry, who contend for any restriction or prohibition, either any limitation of the general freedom of human action or any disqualification or disparity of privilege affecting one person or kind of persons as compared with others. The a priori assumption, presumption is in favor of freedom and impartiality, unquote. Now, with these quotes in mind and this idea of like, that is very difficult to, to change entrenched opinions, is it still as difficult for us in the 21st century as John Stuart Mill discovered it was in the 19th century to promote women's rights? Are we still defending our views with proofs as to why women are indeed equal? Um, sure. I, I feel it is. Again, um, just to go back, if you don't mind, to your previous point, yes, marriage sometimes is an escape from parents. Um, in Singapore, you can't uh, by a public housing, which 80% of the local population lives if you're not married. Uh, so you have to stay uh, with your parents unless you can afford very expensive private uh, housing as well. So people have to either get married at a young age or you stay when you're 27, 28 with your parents. So, um, yeah, I do I do think it's it's a very fair point. I mean, I do think the default position seems to be that one of patriarchy, if you will, one of gender equality favoring the men, and you have to kind of um, come up with arguments and, and think about strategies. And, you know, <clears throat> and I think you see that in Mill as well, as, 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 a, as I think you mentioned as well, that you have the feeling that he is allowing certain arguments, maybe even accepting certain arguments, because otherwise 
he might be seen as completely unhinged. He might be seen as a complete radical in his time. You have the feeling that some of the things he says are not entirely logically derived from what he was arguing before, but he has to, but he has to say it. Otherwise, people will completely cast him outside of <clears throat> the, 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 the realm of, of rational thought, right? Where he... Um, he says when when he defends very much women's right to work, but then he also says, well, of course, only after the children have been taken care of, right? Uh, only then you can, and, uh, and you have a feeling that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe uh, he, he he honestly felt that. Maybe I'm reading too much into him, uh, but you have a feeling when you look at his other argument that he throws in. A bone to his critics there just to to say okay you have this bone and chew on it and now we're gonna um, talk about it but i do yeah i do think generally speaking around the world the burden of proof is still to show that we need to um do away with uh gender inequalities um which which is a really weird weird position to start from but i think historically when you look at feminist studies uh, or gender equality studies, the, the, the large majority of people writing in this are women. Um, and you see very few men in there. Um, and that's kind of, that is not a coincidence as well. That also has to do with that women have to prove that they should not be discriminated again. That brings me to the next question. I wanted to talk to Koshalia about a recent uh, group, the Muslim Personal Law Reform Action Group in Sri Lanka, which is uh, promoting changes to existing legislation that could better the position of women, and particularly Muslim women, in society. So, Koshalia, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about these activists and their reform agenda in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Uh, so, MPL RAG, as we call call the group uh, generally, or they call themselves, uh, is a recent, um, recently active group. But to, to also just go back to it, I, I want to set, give, give you the context of it. Um, because Sri Lanka as a, as a you know, former colony of three, at least three different European countries, uh, we have a whole hodgepodge of laws. We have the British law, we have the Roman Dutch law, and we also have what we call personal laws. And one of these types of personal laws is, is the Muslim law that is relevant to people of Islamic faith. So the Muslim Marriages and Divorce Act of 1951, what we called MMDA, does just what it says it does. It governs the marriage of people of Islamic faith. And um, even if I was marrying somebody who is not of Islamic faith, it can still be um, relevant. Um, so basically, the law does not stipulate a minimum age for marriage, um, which means that uh, for other Sri Lankans, the age of marriage minimally is 18 years. But if you are a Muslim woman, you can be married when you're 12 or 15, etc. Um, it does not um, it does not make mandatory uh, the consent from the woman, whether it's written or oral. Um, the grounds of divorce are very difficult for women as opposed to the men. 
the practice of polygamy is allowed without needing consent from the wife or wives, or you don't have to show that you can, um, you know, afford to be married to so many people, etc. And women are also not allowed to be marriage registrars or um, members of the Qazi courts, the, the Islamic court system. So these are, I mean, these are fairly self-evident as problems, as issues to do with, uh, with you know, women's subjection, if you want to use male's term, right? Uh, and Muslim women's groups and other women's groups have been fighting against this for over 30 years now. So this is, I think, also where the, the amount of, you know, the cycles of fighting in different ways for these rights matter. Uh, but MPRAG, um, Stood out, stands out for me for being a group of uh, Muslim women, not only Muslim women, but generally, uh, who have really focused specifically on the MMDA and asked for reforms and fought for it and very successful awareness raising campaigns on why this is necessary to address the wider population of people, to, to to bring awareness to these differences and how Muslim women in Sri Lanka don't have the same rights as other women in terms of marriage and divorce. Um, so it's only very, it's just this year, the a committee appointed to work on this has, has now submitted their report to parliament recommending all these changes that, we, that the MPRAC has been asking but of course, it's just a committee report, uh, which still needs a lot more work to make sure that the law is reformed. Um, but you can also then see why for me, the reading meals, I was really thinking of MPR RAG and their work to push for certain rights, the way they formulated the, the discursive strategies to formulate these things to show why women, certain women don't have the same rights as other women and therefore, you know, why do we have this, etc. Um, and I also think, you know, these are not reforms that need to be argued about. You would imagine that it's self-evident that this, of course, it should be overturned, right? Um, but also Mills says that, as he says at the very beginning of the text, um, when it's a belief that aligns with the position of power and, and then it is an entirely different set of logical requirements. And that for me, uh, that's when I really thought of the MMDA and the MPRX campaign and lobbying to change the, the Muslim Marriages and Divorce Act, uh, because I, I thought of how much work that Muslim women's groups have been doing just to overturn what would be to the rest of Sri Lankan women just um, taken for granted law in a sense. Um, so, so that's what has been happening and I'm hopeful that the work of all these women's activists over the last several years, but also the NPR Act will now uh, need, you know, come to fruition and, and actually change the law. But knowing how um, a lot of a lot of people, not just men, but a lot of people have spoken against it in the past. I'm still uh, wondering whether there will again be a backlash. But I also think like Mark, I like Marco's point that the backlash also makes it obvious. It comes when there is 
a threat to the status quo and um, and that is to be taken like that's to be considered as well so these are very very practical attempts at helping women in context and i think at its best um, feminism does just that right we are talking about its practical side how can we help women better their situations um, and from this perspective I again will play the devil's advocate uh, and question a little bit the situation today uh, in feminism and the debate in feminism. And um, to some, um, the third wave of, uh, of feminism, as it is called, or the fourth wave, not quite sure, introduced by uh, Butler's um, definition of gender as performance, have taken things a bit too far. And uh, it may not help women better their situations. So I would like to provoke a little bit Marco, because I know he's, he's teaching feminist theory, um, to reflect a bit on this position and also to reflect whether um, we, should, we should let the discussion continue, maybe theoretically, but uh, for our more practical purposes, we go back to books such as Mills, and we talk about, again, about discrimination, about women's role in society. Um, what's more useful, Marco? What do you think? Well, I, I, I'm trying to make up my mind um, personally. I mean, when I started teaching feminist theory, to uh, I used to start with explaining the difference between gender as, as being socially and linguistically constructed um, and biological differences and sex as biological differences, of course, with the caveats uh, <clears throat> that, uh, that are in place. Um, and, and kind of the older feminist argument that just because there uh, may be some biological differences, this should not have any um, impact on construction of gender and, and, and so on. So yeah, that's more kind of third wave, second and third wave uh, feminist approaches. Um, and of course, there's an enormous discussion within feminism, uh, within feminist studies about whether we can reach completely equal gender constructions, uh, whether we can obliterate gender differences only if we also deny <coughs> the idea um, that by and large, again, with, with all the exemptions, um, that there are um, biological differences between men and women. And one of the arguments that can be made is that, and that is, of course, but Butler's argument, famous arguments, yeah, we should deny binary sexual differences. And there are people also making these arguments in terms of biology and so on and so forth. Um, and, and I do know, I do know, and I'm very close in, in, in a few cases to people who are non-binary. Um, and of course, uh, that is fully, fully acceptable. I mean, people should live their lives as they want to. And if they don't want to have a certain label pinned on them, that's, that's who am I to pin that label on them? I'm not, uh, not going to do that. Um, one of the criticisms, of course, that has been made is that if you try to blow up the idea of sexual differences, uh, as in more or less binary, not black and white, but in most cases binary, uh, can we then still talk? Can we still say sentences such as women are 
uh, disadvantaged, right? And that's that's really that is really uh, <clears throat> uh, because yeah, what are women then? If you've just blown up, you can't you can't talk about women as such anymore. So that's one of I mean, and this this debate has gotten enormously polarized, and you know, let's burn the books of J.K. Rowling and all kind of all that stuff. And I really don't I don't don't want to get into that, and I don't have an opinion on that. Um, but yeah, it's so. But it also seems to me. And I know that I know the response um, feminists or Butlerian feminists have, a, have have to that. But it seems to me that yeah, do if if in in say Singapore, right, which is one of the richest countries in the world and doesn't always have enormous gender um, equality, there were for a very long time no female pilots in Singapore Airlines because. Lee Kuan Yew famously said, I don't want a female pilot flying over my house in Oxley Road, or close to uh, <coughs> Orchard Road um, in Singapore. Uh, so there were no female pilots. So there's a lot to be done in, in, in Singapore. It, but it's the best place. Singapore is a quite conservative society, increasingly also because uh, Christianity and in, in, in kind of more radical US versions uh, is very much uh, <clears throat> on the rise there, funded often by American churches. Is it, yeah, is it then the best strategy, also to come back to Mill's use of, of strategy, to kind of tangle with people's arguments, is it the best strategy then to come in there with Butlerian feminism and say, oh, well, wait a minute, stop everybody, there are no men and women anymore. And you see people like Trump, like Putin, he's, he's going on about it endlessly. Of course, you can say if he didn't go on about this, he would go on about something else. I mean, you know, he, he likes to hate and sow division, so he will find a way to do that as well. Um, yeah, I know the answer from Butlerian feminist, which is no, we, lo we listen to local feminisms uh, and we take their lead and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think... I mean, I, I think for me, there is a bit of a cowardly conclusion, if you will, um, also taken for, from literature on social movements. When are their social, when are social movements most effective? Um, and, and, and often social movements, be it environmental movements, civil rights movements, are often effective when you have different types of, uh, <clears throat> in this case, different types of feminism, where you have more second and third wave feminism, but also some fourth wave feminism. I do think that when I look at feminism within international study of international relations, it has almost all become Butlerian feminism. Um, and I do think that is a little bit too one-sided, right? It's not, it, I'm not saying that, I'm, I'm not saying shut this down or this shouldn't be taught or heard or whatever. Or, yeah, I'm a little bit worried sometimes about the, the oh, they, they will hate this term, the hegemony of these ideas uh, in, in feminist uh, studies. Uh, and it should, I think social movements are often very effective when you have one radical uh, flank that, that says, that really tries to push society into very unknown territory and a slightly more moderate mainstream. And, and, and I think, in social movements literature, you find that when you have these two together, that can be very effective. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, so I plead for more theoretical diversity, perhaps. I do want to agree with uh, what Marcus said. I find 
um, in just to say that in in the early 2000s i was very involved in the queer rights movement and i find now i mean i'm not doing that work now but i also find that it has taken away certain spaces that some groups within the queer rights movement has to work at least in in sri lanka because it feels like if you don't identify as transgendered or if you don't conform or uh, or even agree with some of the the ways of talking about uh, binariness or gender norms you are not even able to articulate some of the rights that um, cisgendered same-sex identifying people want to talk about so in that sense I feel also that there is a particular kind of silencing going on that I find very disturbing so what I would like in a way is like Marco said we should be speaking about for me I would like to be able to have multiple perspectives and positions within within the circles of activism that I do as well and I find I find Butler very powerful in some of her work but I worry about how it has been um, translated into activist work. Okay, great. Thanks. So to sort of round off, round off our discussion, um, I want to just drop in a quote by uh, John Stuart Mill and just get your reaction. It's a simple quote. Uh, it's a question actually asks, would mankind be at all better off if women were free? Marco. Well, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and of course, to give credit where credit is due, uh, Butler and other post-structuralists, post-essentialists, of course, you're not a true post-essentialist if you admit that you are a post-essentialist. Um, I had this endless discussion with my first PhD student at Jacobs, who was from uh, Kerala, and I would he would work with active network theory, and I said, well, you're a post-essentialist, and he said, no, I'm not. And I said, well, but that's what a post-essentialist would say, because it's too essentialist. And, and, and we would go on around, we went in rounds like in circles for four years until he finished. A, a very, very nice guy. Um, but he uses the term mankind there. Is mankind better off rather than humankind uh, better off? So, um, I would also argue, of course, as I've said uh, before, that mankind would be better off if humankind would be better off. I think, you know, this, this, this idea still around after all these years, decades, centuries, um, that struggle for gender equality is, is, is a thing that women do or women academics or female activists do and, and has no um, uh, relevance to, to male academics, male activists is, is bizarre, of course, but um, so, sorry, I've lost my towards the question. It's, I got so hung up on the mankind thing. It's, no, I, I think this is this is super interesting. Would you? I mean, I, I noted that, um, and also the fact, obviously, that that John Stuart Mill himself is is a man or identifies as a man, mm. um, and writes about this. But yeah, so it would sort of the entirety of humankind, perhaps even you know the Earth, more. Uh, more generally, including sort of the animals and the plants and the and the geology, would would that all of that our existence be better off if we if women were free? 
Yeah, that's a very, I know what the feminist answer is and that's yes, um, but that is for me not always, that is a bit of a tricky, uh, that's a very tricky question. <laughs> that's the last one is, is really tricky. I didn't see that one coming. So this linking always, I'm not always sure that tactically you should try to fight. Uh, well, you should try to fight at all these fronts simultaneously, but you, sh you might not want to always in link uh, these battles um, uh, because maybe you can achieve progress, say, on environmental protection without necessarily immediately um, getting a lot of progress on gender inequality and, and so on and so forth. So I'm not always sure that this linking of all these factors, however normatively appealing I find it, I'm not always sure that tactically that is the, smart, the smartest uh, move in, in concrete situations. I'm also not sure what to say. I, also, I'm, I mean, obviously the first response would be to say that uh, just because one group is free doesn't mean that they will change the way they think about other things like the environment, right? Um, I'm not really sure that humans are necessary and really that we need humans also in the world. Um, I sometimes wish that the climate crisis would fast forward in such a way that the humans are gone and that the earth can recover. Um, so I'm really not sure what working for uh, a free society means in that in this current context of where we are in the world right now. Uh, but I guess for as long as we are around, we should strive for better rights, more rights, a, a better live, living world for all of us. So in that sense, but I'm not sure that it will work. I'm, I'm really cynical about that because I feel that unevenness, I, I love Marco's uh, example of, um, you know, uh, USC existing right next to so much poverty. Um, and I've seen similar universities in, in the US as well, other universities. Um, and we look at the regions, we look at the war that's going on right now um, in various parts of the world. So I'm really not sure whether everything will be hunky-dory when women are free just pass. So sorry about that. Oh, you can apologize to John Stuart Mill. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I think these were like really, really powerful answers and a really interesting and enlightening discussion. Yes, and thank you very much, uh, Marco. Thank you, Kaushalya. It was um, a great discussion and it was great having you here uh, on Critically Linked. Um, thank thank you, you for listening to us and uh, hopefully um, we will be meeting again in the future. Thank you. Thank you, all three of you. Thank you. Bye.